broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mike Drop Club. Hosted by Douglas Hamandiche. Message received. Message received. You do not need to know what you need. What you need. Just engage with the podcast feed. Just engage with the podcast feed. Providing weekly insights into cool stuff we've read, saw, did, or heard about what made us say, wow, eureka, damn, nothing is off limits. If it motivates and inspires you to reach your goals, then it shall be discussed. Featuring guest interviews from high performers and people of influence and weekly awards for the best mic drop moment. This podcast is guaranteed to leave you pumped up for the week ahead. Don't just live life, make life boom. Once again, how you guys doing out there? It's Douglas Hamadiche for another episode of the Mic Drop Club. Today is raining, it's cold outside, but I'm uplifted. I'm in a good space. I am blessed. I'm super happy because I'm sharing this podcast episode with somebody that's truly inspiring, somebody that's doing great stuff out there. I have the one and the only Martika Swaby from Benevolent Health. How are you doing? I am well. Thank you so much, Douglas, for having me on. I'm super excited to be here. Fantastic. The pleasure is all mine. Pleasure is all mine. And um, this is a, for me being an op- optimistic type of person and always carrying my gear. Hence, we're having this impronto, mm. straight off the cuff podcast. And I just want to touch base with um, Martika in terms of the business that she, she runs. She's an entrepreneur. and it's a, loaded, it's a loaded statement to say someone's an entrepreneur, but this is a real entrepreneur that is actually walking the walk and going through the, the, the struggles and the, and the triumphs on that journey to add value in a space whereby, actually, I'll let, I'll let her explain it better than me. So, Martika, tell me a bit about Benevolent Health and how you came up with the whole concept. So, I guess my kind of mission or vision, if you like, was around making... Um, mental health and mental health conversations accessible. And for me, that's about working with individuals. It's about working with workplaces and communities. Um, And so really I wanted to um, make the narrative more accessible because I think sometimes with mental health, it can be um, you know, very kind of, I, I don't know if one-sided is the right word, but it, it doesn't feel multifaceted to me. So I'm a psychotherapist by background and I'd worked in ver- a very clinical, um, a clinical way of, of um, dealing with mental health. And, and I think that, um, you know, that's the kind of standard model that, you know, if something's wrong, Um, You go to your GP or, you know, you go to a counsellor, you go to a therapist and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's a need for that. But I also think there's a real um, preventative element that we're missing out on. And actually, when we think about mental health, we think about mental illness, actually, and and mental health's on a spectrum and not everybody is ill per se. Um, so, you know, we all suffer with stress. We all have anxiety. We all get depressed from time to time. And actually, you know, what are the conversations that are bringing people in and educating 
um, you know, and raising awareness around the, I guess, the more um, lower lower end of, of the spectrum or the the the, the less acute needs. Yes. And and I felt that this dialogue was really missing from the what I would call the treatment um, kind of phase of um, getting support and getting help. So yeah, I I was um, I was like, well, you know, what can we? How can we add value? How can benevolent health add value to this conversation? And, and for me, that was about, um, you know, bringing the narrative into the workplace. And I'm not just talking about kind of occupational health um, or the usual kind of EAP, which is generally how organisations manage uh, mental health or the mental health conversation, but, you know, making it broader than that. Because I think actually in the workplace, this is about as leaders, you know, how how do we um, show love, if you like, to our staff? How do we appreciate and value people? That's just uh, uh, as important um, intervention as it is to have a counselling or therapy or an EAP or occupational health. It's like, how do you behave as a, as a leader? How do you model that? And then, you know, on an, on an individual level, actually, we, we've just run a, a summit um, around eating disorders for Eating Disorders Awareness Week. And we've tried to involve narratives, you know, beyond the kind of the usual narrative around eating disorder is um, anorexia and bulimia. And we think about it from a very kind of, um, you know, affluent female perspective. That's the only people that are affected by eating disorders. That's the sort of popular narrative. And actually, you know, the 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 biggest problem with the in eating disorders is is binge eating and compulsive eating, yes. which impacts forty five percent of the population that are suffering with eating disorders. And we we don't really speak about that or the you know the the obesity epidemic that's happening at the moment. Um, and we also don't speak about orthorexia, which is our real, you know, the real popular narrative at the moment around um, eating disorders and this obsession with clean eating and eating vegan and, um, you know, having pure foods. And, yes, and it's good exactly. to eat healthy. And I think that's great. And, you know, I try to eat healthy and I go to the gym and I'm I believe in all of that stuff because I think, you know, our nutrition impacts our moods, it impacts our well-being. But also, you know, if you scroll down social media, if you scroll down Instagram, you've got all of these like buff bodies, um, you know, uh, super perfect uh, female bodies with, you know, peach bums and just perfect. And, you know, it's great to look like that, but actually some people don't. And, you know, it, it's all right not to as well. And I think that, you know, the whole narrative, this, this um, you know, body obsessed narrative is really um, promoting, uh, I guess, a socially accepted eating disorder, which if you went to your GP, orthorexia actually isn't on the DSM-5. It's not a diagnosable um, eating disorder. However, you know, people that are um, heading into, um, you know, that really kind of restrictive or avoidant um, eating behaviour are, are heading towards, a, you know, a serious mental health issue. And I think, you know, the anorexia and bulimia narrative, that's where most of the mortalities come from. But actually on the other end of the spectrum, the preventative spectrum, you know, what are we doing to kind of to, to um, educate and change the narrative around, um, around body image around diet culture because actually this is this is quite harmful to our young people and to 
and um, particularly to, to women who seem to be impacted by this um, more. I mean, Lena gave a really good um, overview of orthorexia um, the other day um, in our Eating Disorders Awareness Summit. And she was talking, um, you know, how it's um, she's got um, something, uh, a condition with her bones that like 80 year olds get from, you know, not having the right nutrition, you know, your menstrual cycle stops, all of these things impact us. So we should be having these conversations more in mainstream. And, you know, the menopause conversation is starting to become um, a narrative in the workplace. Um, and, and, and just as a community, how we respond to people and, um, you know, when, when people bring up these topics, I think it's still really hidden. And, you know, even in, um, Western culture where we're quite open and, and probably, um, a lot more open than in other cultures, for example, um, lots of Muslim women reached out to me in the eating disorders awareness, um, summit and said that they, you know, they don't have anything like this here. And it was such a, it was so encouraging and motivating to be able to hear other women having these experiences. So, so really my kind of heart and my, um, my mission, if you like, is to make, um, you know, mental health from, you know, all different, uh, perspectives, uh, part of the mainstream narrative. Fantastic. And, and, and as you're speaking, you raised a lot of different issues there from the workforce, how we, um, um, support people if their health and wellness talked about actual eating disorders as well, how they manifest as well and the impacts it can have on their culture and, and how that imp- influences the whole conversation. Mm. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges I've seen is how we set up the conversation. How do we enable the narratives to be expressed from different cultural backgrounds? Is there any techniques that you, you do within your your training to enable people to come out mm. and and speak their truth as it were. I, I think that that's, that's an interesting um, question actually, because I think that one of the challenges with mental health um, and wellbeing, actually there isn't one size fits all. And I think there are cultural nuances and one of the, um, things to me that's really important is adding diversity to the conversation and that the conversation doesn't, you know, it's not dominated by, um, you know, a perspective that it, it, it's broadened. And I think that in everything, certainly that um, benevolent health do, um, whether it's individual um, programs or workplace programs or I'm lost now. You're lost. <laughs> No, 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 you're doing so much. Oh, sorry, sorry. Or, or community you're programs. Doing I, so much. I, and what I, what I will say to you is this, right? When you are delivering so much value in this space, it's it's very difficult at times to um, prioritize because you're hitting so many different society problems. Mm. I'm diversing, um, digressing a little bit, but I think it's important. How do you prioritize which are your key key challenges that you want to address out of all that list? Yeah, on the well being in terms of workplace, um, diets, um, um, in terms of how people yeah m- use or misuse food and all that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, in terms of of what we do, I think that um, so I kind of tend to map out the key priorities at the beginning of each year 
in terms of the the key projects that we're going to focus on. And eating disorders was one of them because I still work clinically as a psychotherapist with binge and compulsive eating. So it, it's a, it's a passion of mine and it, and it interlinks with kind of what, what we do. Yeah. I think in terms of the workplace um, narrative, I mean, that's obviously part of our core and business in terms of the well-being stuff that we do um, in corporate spaces. And I think there's much more interest in the corporate space. And here's the thing, because, you know, the NHS is great and, um, you know, I'm, I totally advocate for the NHS and I think the nurses and doctors work so hard and, you know, are not valued enough, but there's massive pressure um, in, in the NHS and we've got a, a dwindling workforce. Yes, and so, yes. you know, the need for this stuff is increasing, but actually the, the workforce isn't increasing with it. Um, and so what we've got is a situation where there are long waiting lists. And so this is going to impact workplaces because actually if people can't get help when they need to, to they're going to be coming to work unwell or um, needing support from EAP or workplace programs. And actually, you know, managers need to be equipped to understand, you know, what to do. And that's not about resolving issues. It's just about being a good container. And I like the, um, so I'm a psychotherapist and, you know, so I have to have a bit of theory and I like the theory from beyond, which talks about the containing mother and the idea that actually, um, you know, that, that the mother's able to interpret the baby's needs from their cry or from the, the, the gaze, from the stare of feeding and stuff. And so there's this idea that actually, you know, as managers or as good managers, good leaders, that we're, that we're good containers and that we can contain people's anxiety. And also there's a lot of pressure in organizations, you know, to, to do more and do more for less. So there's less resources, less time, and, and so actually as a leader, you know, you've got all of these competing priorities and pressures and how do you manage and support people and, and, and lead them well, as well as, you know, getting on with the job and signposting, yes. you know, people to the right place. There's, it, it's a challenge. And so if we can create leaders that have a, a good container, mm-hmm as Beyond would describe it as a container, then actually we're creating, we're, we're increasing the capacity of um, managers, of leaders within organisations and also providing support to people much earlier, which is 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 the root of everything that we do. Correct. Pre- prevention is key. And when we talk about health, it's always, it should always be from the vantage point of prevention, empowering the individual. And from a, company perspective, if you've got a healthy um, workforce, you're actually contributing to society as well. Sometimes managers get um, bogged down in their day-to-day operations of their individual business. Mm. But being able to be a bit more expansive in the discussion and understanding that actually this person who works in this organisation, if you are able to identify any challenges, problems, concerns that they have early... Um, the interventions are going to be cheaper to the state because they won't require going into hospital, for example. They are going to have less impact on their days off sick and less impact on their family. They'll be able to have continuity as well as being able to be able to contribute better at work because they're actually in a better state of being. Do you find 
that cuts through in terms of how you communicate with leaders? Or do you think a lot of leaders are still in that um, 1950s, 1960s conveyor belt type management mm. mode whereby I just want my, my staff to come to work? What sort of resistance are you, you you're getting? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it depends on the culture of the organisation. I think there are some um, organisations and cultures that are more forward thinking than others. Um, you know, for example, I, I mean, I've got healthcare background, which has quite a, uh, a hierarchical um, more old school um, leadership approach. Um, and, and I've also worked with tech and that's very flat. So, you know, regardless of whether you're the CIO or, you know, um, you know, working as, a, as an admin, that everyone sits together and works together. And, you know, there's not a kind of, um, there's not a hierarchy, if you like. So I think different organisations have different cultures. And I think different cultures attract different people. In in psychotherapy, we talk about valency mm -hmm. and the idea that actually certain personality types and certain types of people are more attracted to certain industries. So, for example, like in tech, we know that there's a huge issue around women um, working in, you know, coding, AI, that sort of stuff. And and why aren't women attracted to those roles? Yeah. Whereas, you know, in teaching, for example, or even in psychotherapy and counselling, uh, you know, it's heavily women dominated. So, yeah. you know, there are some yeah. industries that attract different types of people. So I think that impacts. Um, I, I, I think one of the... Um, I guess the one of the the key things around um, different industries and different cultures um, is that actually you find uh, you work together with the the staff with the employees um, to understand what it is that they would like to see and what would be helpful because yeah. I think that often you know we sit down and 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 as experts in an area you think that you kind of know what the solution is and actually you know, that might not be the right solution. And and I think it's easier to, to take something off the shelf and try and make it malleable and, 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 and fit it into, um, you know, what you've got, where actually sometimes you need to kind of like rip that up and start again. And I think that's a risk for um, organisations, but actually what you get is something really valuable and something that people want to use. The other thing I would say around that as well is, um, you know, some of this stuff isn't, it, it's, it's kind of everyday people skills and like, you know, just showing people love. And I know love is an odd concept for an organization in, in that, you know, you don't really have it in your, you know, appraisal processes or that when you go for recruitment, you know, a process that you don't kind of ask any questions on that, you know, how do you measure it? <laughs> how, exactly. You know, to quantify that. Exactly. Yeah. But I think there is something about giving and I think, you know, your, that your point about, um, you know, how do, um, how do organizations, um, uh, approach this and how do they, how do they deliver it? And I think there's something uh, at an organizational and an individual mm. level, level about giving 
And actually, when you're um, connected to your colleagues and when you're connected to the environment that you work in, the external environment, and you, you give back, that actually there's so much reward in that. Exactly. Um, and exactly. there, there's so much reward in that. And it's so uplifting um, and rewarding to be able to give something to another person. So one of the biggest things I always challenge organisations to do is actually hooking to their um, local environment and and get involved with things that are going on locally to make a difference um, and, and trying to support you know, a local organization. Cause I think that's a, a, a really important part of a wellbeing strategy that, you know, the, the staff feel that they're giving and also, you know, the organization is, and the, then there's that kind of process of, of, you know, giving back that Correct. is rewarding. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. There was this, um, this approach or this, um, yeah, this approach that was used in between Boston, um, technical, um, colleges that were sprouted out in the late nineties or eighties to nineties, and then the um the the way they were taken over by Silicon Valley, mm. um whereby all the tech um generation moved to Silicon Valley opposed to the Boston area, and that was typically because of the philosophy in those companies was all about collaboration mm. and creating social movements, mm. creating solutions that would impact the local environment, such as transportation, health. So they weren't just a software, it wasn't just a collection of software companies that are put together, say in the Boston area, that were always focused on growth for the company. But in Silicon Valley, it was all about what can we do as a community? So when companies have that communal philosophy and connect with their local charities, local organizations, that, that I think attracts different networks that can support the organization. Mm. So you're part of that inclusiveness, I guess. I was going to ask you in terms of the, the how, how do organizations actually deliver it? Because sometimes you could get resistance and it's based upon, if I ask my employee how they're feeling and they say, I'm feeling bad, I don't know how to deal with, the how bit, how to support them moving forward. I don't know what to do. And so sometimes organizations can tend to turn a blind eye to the thoughts, feelings, and concerns of their employees. They know that that's their home life. They just have to come to work because we don't know how to support them. Yeah. So are there any tools that you um, teach organizations or reassure them that, that you can actually support them in their health and well-being. Yeah, I mean the 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 disclosure part is um, actually one of the key things that that come up all the time. If someone tells me that I'm struggling, what what do I say? And I think that you know we're always afraid of opening a tin of worms. But I, I would say that actually it's worse to ignore the elephant in the room than it is to have the conversation. Even if you don't say the right things, the fact that you've been open to have the conversation can be like can be a good container. Mm -hmm. Back to um, my point about Beyond earlier, and it's how you create that container. It's how you create the environment for those conversations. So, the actual, you know, when you look at kind of um, communication, I think it's only something like seven percent of communication is words. It eighty three percent of it is is body language, and and then the rest is tone of voice. So, it, it's not so much actually what you say; it's how you come across. And so, um, we do have a, a work 
workplace mental health training and accredited training. And um, one of the days focuses on motivational interviewing, which looks at at the how and, um, you know, how you can have those conversations and that it's not necessarily just to be used for wellbeing conversations. It can be also from a leadership perspective as well to, you know, to have difficult conversations about things, um, which you have to do sometimes as a, as a, as a manager. But I, I think that the, the how process is more around being comfortable with people and increasing emotional intelligence rather than having a formula of, you know, these are the things that you need to do because someone will fit will always be outside of that. And then you'll panic and go, Oh, I've said the wrong thing or I don't have the right solution. So, I mean, I'm all for mental health first aid training. I think it's fantastic. I think they've done a great job. Um, but it, it's what's beyond that, you know, what comes next. And I think that, you know, leaders, managers need to feel comfortable um, having difficult conversations that they won't necessarily always have the solutions for because it's not about resolving the problem necessarily. It's just about opening up that conversation. And, and that's a sub- superb point. Um, the intention you have is far better than how you come across in terms of, because you might not say the right words, but your intention, particularly if you're on the recipient, you're the recipient, mm-hmm. and you're looking outward for somebody, somebody that that can reassure you that's okay. Mm-hmm. You're not really focused, like like I said, about the body language. It's more weighty than that your words that they use. That mm-hmm. like you can you can tell if somebody's sincere in terms of asking you how you're feeling and stuff like that. So it starts again with with. Mm-hmm intention and the how it's not a tick box exercise organizations have to go to know this is another thing that we have to demonstrate that we are proficient in there's there's something that is deep and more profound at its core i think that you're alluding to i I mean i think emotional i mean in the future of work Mm. i think emotional intelligence is going to be a skill that organizations will really value and need especially as we move more to automation and potentially robots. I mean, I'm not of the mindset that robots are going to take our jobs and, you know, we're not going to have any work. I, I don't, I think we're what, what very far from that, but we are moving to, to, to a work environment, which is more remote and um, technology. You know, we're always switched on. We've got phones, laptops, and this interferes with that kind of traditional way of working where you go in at nine, you finish at five, then you go home and then you don't go back until the next day. People are answering calls at seven, eight o'clock at, the, at night. If you're working internationally, you know, you'll have a a strange time schedule. It won't be kind of nine to five. So it's how do you have these boundaries around, you know, managing your well-being and, and your resilience around this? And I think that managers will have a uh, more of a important role in in actually understanding their staff and understanding how they work and what their strengths are to be able to get the best out of them and to keep them resilient. So I, I think in the future of work, having that emotional intelligence and being able to kind of see that somebody is struggling or that they're not quite themselves or something's changed 
Um, and having those early conversations are the best ones. And they're not, you know, that's not having like a formula of, okay, you need to do this, this and this, or even, you know, this fancy EIP, that EAP scheme that you can refer to. It's just around actually, are you okay? What, what can I do to, 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 to make this different or what can I do to help? And, you know, there was a really good example the other day of, um, you know, there was two colleagues and they were both struggling um, with similar issues. So one of them um, around their children having problems with their with their teenage children and it impacted on on their work. And um, one of them went to their manager and their manager um, you know, was just like, okay, that, do you need time off? And that, you know, went into kind of solution focus straight away. And the other manager was like, okay, well, what do you need? What what can we do to, to make this, to help you yeah. to facilitate this, which is a completely different conversation. And I think as managers, you know, we want to fix things. And I think as humans, we want to fix things. It's really normal. Yeah. And, and it's been able to like, you know, put the brakes on and go, okay, what what is it that you need and trying to understand from the other's perspective. So you're pushing it back. You're pushing the responsibility back. You're providing a supportive framework mm-hmm. environment, but essentially you're, you're saying to the individual, what can I do to support you? Or what can you do? What So what things do you need? And then providing it support that way, opposed to, I guess, typically when you're, we're unwell at work, you get time off work, you go see occupational health and the interventions that they offer you are very basic. Mm. I think as you correct me and, and steer me in the right direction, your approach um, encourages a much broader plethora of interventions that you can use. Cause now you're just saying your individual, what works for somebody else might not work for you. What can we do to recognize your strengths, your weaknesses mm. and plug in those gaps? Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, the, um, the, 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 the individual approach is, um, you know, way more, way more impactful and way more beneficial. And that's about, you know, having a, a good understanding of yourself as a leader and being comfortable in your own skin and to be able to then, you know, be a container for someone else. And I think that skill is far more valuable than potentially, you know, any kind of intervention um, in terms of, you know, y- your well-being. Excellent. So very quickly, how did you get into, I know we spoke about it right at the beginning, but we need to go back. What was your journey? Because you're bringing a wealth of experience here. And to make the journey as an entrepreneur, at some point you're saying, I don't want to go the 95 rat race type scenario. I want to go. Was it a tipping point? Was it accumulation of events? What was it for you? So, uh, um, as I said before, I'm a psychotherapist by background. And one of the things I realized really early on was I can only see one person at a time. So if I work for seven hours a day and five days a week, I could probably see like 30, 35 people at a push. That's not taking on any admin or, you know, other things that you need to do. 
And and I was just like, oh my God, I'm like, I can only reach 35 people. Like averagely, I keep, I, you yeah. know, I keep them on my case though for like six months. Like that's hardly any people I can reach. And so, um, you know, taking some of this online with programs and um, the Eating Disorders Awareness Summit, doing things in collaboration with other experts and also at an organizational level where you can train um, an upskill and managers and leaders to then can continue and do um, and do this with their staff. This is scalable. So, um, so I was actually thinking about my kind of um, motivation was how can I reach more people? How can I reach more countries? That's right. And, and so, actually, the legacy of it in terms of the collaboration and upskilling other people and that kind of train the trainer model. Is actually how you spread this way of working. And, you know, my vision was to work with 20 million people in 20 countries. Say it. Say it. Um, you have to say that and, because it's important. And everyone was like, how are you going to do that? Yeah. Just little you on your own. And I was like, well, I don't know, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I mean, you know, even with the summit, we had something like maybe six or seven countries Brilliant. involved in that. And that, you know, that was just three days. We were talking purely about eating disorders. We're planning another one in the summer around digital well-being because we see this as a big issue around um, mental health. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's just about getting out there and doing stuff. And I think that, you know, the rest follows. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think having that bigger vision, you know, you described as you said little me, but you're solving a big problem. And I think resources automatically come to people who are trying to solve big problems because these are problems not just affecting an individual hospital, an individual community, um, county, um, country. You talk about countries, I think you mentioned six. Mm. Yeah. So this is about, it's about connecting and solving those big problems. So I am very happy. I'm supremely blessed at having you here for this conversation. Hopefully it's the first of many and um, I wish you well. So in terms of how can people get hold of you, which is the most important thing, because the value that you're offering businesses, I really subscribe to the view that you need to, to support your the people that work for you. Okay, they're partners. They're not just employees. They're, they're partners in you. You have a common objective to make your business successful. So any support that you can offer people that work with you, I thoroughly recommend you go and seek out Martika. Yeah. So, um, www.benevolenthealth.co.uk. I will give you a link to, we've got like a free download, um, for workplaces that answers the three key questions that people often ask around how they manage disclosure. Um, you know, what kinds of, what, what to say in conversations and also the kind of the prevention angle. Um, and that's completely free. So I will give you the link to that that you can post with the podcast and then people can download that. Brilliant. It's been exciting. It's been motivational, inspirational. And once again, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out micdropclub.com and get the show notes and useful links. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't just live life, make life boom.